You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Dash Winterson, who is using Django and Python as the backend for a freeform iOS chat app. Dash, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your app? Sure, sure. So um, I am the principal um, backend engineer for Muse. Uh, I manage all the day-to-day uh, development flow and uh, deployments and, and scaling and all that kind of stuff. Um, the app itself is is uh, still in pre-release. We're trying to release, I think, August uh, 15th right now. That's kind of the um, the uh, deadline that we've given investors um, and ourselves to sort of just get the kind of minimum viable product out. And uh, And so... Uh, coming in, coming into the back end, actually, um, I, I didn't actually make the initial decision to uh, to use Django, but uh, I actually adopted the code base from somebody else who um, who who moved away from the company, and uh, so it's been pretty interesting. <laughs> it's been a lot of uh, ups and downs, and uh, there's uh, there was a lot of abuse of of certain facilities in Django that I had to kind of um, overhaul. I ended up essentially rewriting the back end completely. It was it was a lot of work. <laughs> oh wow. So I hope there was at least test to uh, refactor that or no. Oh yeah, so we've got code coverage, we've got like uh, continuous deploy or continuous integration. We've got we've got everything. Um, I um, I came from another company, Relio, that got acquired by um, company Fullscreen. They did uh, we did like influencer marketing, uh, marketplace uh, kind of style app. Uh, and, uh, when I was working there, I was working with like a three or four, like really, really, really competent sort of like seasoned Django people. And, uh, so their like workflow was just per- like essentially perfected. And, uh, I got to kind of get, get in on a lot of that stuff and I brought it in, uh, in the new system. So it's been pretty fun because it's been a lot of like, there's been a lot of DevOps, obviously that kind of comes with the territory of backend development and Python. Um, but then there's also like a lot of opportunity for, um, for fixing things up. I think the person who actually, and I, I see this a lot in, um, in, uh, in a lot of like MVPs is somebody will use Django, but they don't necessarily understand what Django is, or they'll use Django REST framework. And they, um, it seems like, uh, sometimes they, they'll, um, they'll just kind of use the ORM and they don't understand that there's all these kind of like tools and all these utilities underneath, um, and you know, above and below the, uh, the ORM that allow you to do all kinds of crazy stuff. Like for instance, um, I've been using um, I've been using uh, uh, Jago REST framework and uh, the schema generation to um, programmatically <laughs> generate Swift uh, API libraries, <laughs> which has been pretty insane. Um, but um, but yeah, but uh, so so there's been a lot of opportunity for sort of um, cleaning things up and you know using using all of my kind of Python Python experience and uh, and developing like an actual like developer workflow. It's been cool. Right. So how's that experience been so far rewriting this? I mean, like. Well, in terms of, was it enjoyable? Was it really painful? Also, how long did it take? There was a sort of, a, there was a stage when I got to, uh, when I got to Muse, um, where I was like, hey guys, what's up? It's me, Dash. Um, I'm a developer. And they're like, oh, su- super awesome, super cool. And uh, I kind of like sat down um, um, on this code base and like almost kind of did like a double take on a lot of things. I sat down, I was looking at a lot of the stuff. So so uh, um, for those not familiar with like Django REST framework, just a little bit of um, um uh, background you can you can um, essentially uh, boilerplate uh, sort of like uh, like crud operations over the Django ORM. So if you want to like allow users to like create, update, or delete um, any set of data uh, that they that belongs to them or that doesn't or whatever, um, you can 
you can essentially do that in like like five or six actual like functional lines, um, which is super handy. And what these guys had done before I came in was they had essentially used uh, like functional views to do that exact thing in like this really crazy manner. So all the sort of serialization stuff, all this like the the um, the normalization or the sanitization of of um, like input parameters was done like manually. So like it would be like get the request dictionary and check to see that this doesn't have any like letters in it or numbers in it. So I was going through line by line this like completely sort of manual like uh, uh, like input sanitization and I was just like this is insane. So what I essentially did was I deleted all of the views and I just like like through all of the models that they had, you know, so like the chat there's a, a chat model, there's like a user model. Um there's uh there's like a message model obviously just like you can see you can uh, you can see like a good example of this in like any stack overflow answer to like how do i make a chat bot in django um all those models were there and i essentially just threw them into drf uh, what do you call it class-based views and um gave them all or gave them this functionality that um they they'd essentially been writing by hand <laughs> so that was um that was fun that was like a big opportunity to sort of um flex my django know-how um and then in doing that it was pretty it was pretty um natural just to sort of um to put that all into tests so i've got like 90 i think i have 93 or 94 percent code coverage right now and a lot of the code coverage is actually or a lot of the actual functional code isn't in the sort of rest uh interface it's actually in a um a uh a set of like message broker um sort of functions that i uh, wrote in grpc which is a, a library. I don't know if um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, I wasn't familiar with it before. I was recommended to use it by uh, one of the people from Snapchat, one of the people from uh, Discord, which was uh, which was interesting. It's been pretty fun. It essentially um, it kind of throws Django <laughs> like for a loop, but um, but uh, it allows us to do like a lot of sort of uh, like web web 2.0 like web sockety type stuff. Uh, using protobuf, so that's interesting. I've been using Django and protobuf together. <laughs> nice. Yeah, lots of good stuff to unwind there. So 93% code coverage, that's quite the feat. I understand for a lot of things, it gets kind of difficult to get up there for sure, like certain libraries. Yeah, um, I think it was especially difficult. Uh, the biggest challenge I had was, you know, like Django's going through a sort of um, a sort of shift now and a lot of libraries and Python in general has been for the past, I would say five or 10 years, just kind of been struggling with the concept of async and, and um, with the GIL and everything. And so the neat organized object oriented sort of testing facilities that you have in Django don't necessarily jibe with um, a lot of the stuff that gRPC wants to do, um, especially when it comes to like using a message broker or something else, which is very asynchronous, behaves very asynchronously. So like I was having problems actually initially just even like, uh, like sending a message and receiving it just because Django didn't want to or because like, you know, inside the Django testing framework, it didn't want to sort of like send a message asynchronously and then pick it up on the other side. Like it, like doing that sort of like a leapfrog type um, um, test was a very strange thing for the Django, like, you know, non-async um, test to understand. So I had to use the Django um, PyTest library. And, um, in, and then in doing that, I hit all these problems with um, uh, just the transactional uh, or the like atomic transaction nature of, uh, of the Django ORM. Um, one of the things I actually realized in doing that, what which is something I hadn't realized um, earlier, was that because Django is um, like request response architecture, 
um, it um, it opens up a database connection as soon as as soon as it needs to, and it doesn't close it until that request is done because it's assuming that that um, that sort of thread or that process or whatever it's running inside of is going to be terminated when the request is terminated. So um, so I had a, I had huge problems with gRPC opening up database connections um, and then just never closing them because it was um, because the process itself doesn't end. It actually keeps dialogues with several different like connections and and it will. Um, it, it, like the architecture of how it runs is completely different, you know. Mm -hmm. So that was that was challenging. Um, um, and and then going back to going back to testing, I mean, that was all like all that stuff was all this sort of like epiphany that I reached eventually, realizing that um, just sort of Django, <laughs> Django, uh, and this seems dumb saying it out loud now, but Django um, is not like yet asynchronous. It's not ready for async. Its architecture does not necessarily lend itself to asynchronous uh, styles of um, of design. And so if you want to do something like using the ORM in an async environment or using something um, um, outside of that request response sort of architecture, it can actually cause a lot of problems. And those problems aren't necessarily apparent at first. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So I'm not actually a Django developer, but I do remember there are certain things in modern versions of Django where like they're slowly creating maybe like an async compatible libraries. Like what's the what's the deal with that? So so um, Django has slowly over time um, been migrating and similar to the way a lot of libraries have done it where, um, you know, they introduce async features. They introduce like async sort of uh, what do you call it? Kind of compatibility utilities and things like that. Um, and what they're doing now is, so in 3.0 and 3.1, I think you have asynchronous views, you have asynchronous this, asynchronous that. Um, the ORM itself and the and the database connector is still very, it's not just that it's asynchronous, it's also designed to uh, um, to work in an environment that is, um, that is, like I was saying, request response. So like your, your thread or your process or your dialogue or whatever Python's running in is only running inside that context of that context of that request. And then it's, um, it's terminated when that request is finished. So like, like I was saying before, the hanging database connections or whatever else, like those things are, are baked into Django, not just as like kind of functionality, but also as sort of like blind spots in a way. Um, and it's, 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 it can be really, really tricky to kind of get in, get down into that. Right. So for this app itself on the back end, do you end up using something like Celery or no? To process jobs in the background, we were using Celery, um, but what I've ended up doing is creating a lot of just um, worker um, processes for myself. Like Celery is really, really great, um, especially if you have sort of um, things that uh, things that you, especially for rapid prototyping. Obviously, you don't want to be writing your own like workers, but um, I, I need I need granular control over like a lot of stuff. Where I, it's not that I I, might, I may have been able to use Celery. But um, just because it's a little bit more black box as far as um, being able to prioritize jobs and sort of triaging, et cetera, um, I, um, I actually ended up opting for my own sort of solution. The other reason for that being that uh, I know, like, you know, obviously you can pull Celery out of Django, but um, I didn't want to marry myself into like these large Python frameworks where I might want to eventually replace uh, the worker task that I'm using with, uh, with something that's maybe not even in Python. You know what I mean? So like sort of there was a bit of future proofing, which I know is, is a dirty word at times, but um, there was a sort of concern of like 
Uh, okay, you know, Python's actually not that great at, for instance, image resizing, right? It's slow. It's slow with image resizing, or it can be be a bit buggy, can do things that you don't necessarily expect it's going to do. Like, what if I want to, at some point, you know, move to Node.js for my image resizing? You know, there's a library, I think, called, uh, like, Shard or something like that that I was experimenting with. So, first of all, we ha I have these very sort of time-dependent tasks, these, like, things that absolutely, like, cannot wait to, to run, and they need to run, and they're running all the time, and they're, like, sort of almost like the, the actual value of the app. Uh, like image resizing, for instance, um, like I was mentioning, um, and just um, like Celery was too sort of vague in in control in the ways that I needed to have control for me to be able to trust it as a framework. You know what I mean? But yeah, obviously, when you're when you're coding Django, you do need some sort of solution, some sort of like async, some sort of or not async, but um, some sort of like worker um, type framework to uh, to do all of your dirty work in the background. Right. So I've actually never used gRPC. Is that something that you just run it as like a process? independent of Gunicorn or whatever app server that you use? Uh, yeah, so it runs as a separate process. Um, I have it, I ha so I have it running in Elastic Beanstalk, unfortunately, <laughs> um, but um, I have it running um, as one of, one of several uh, containers. So um, I actually have a, um, a, like a monolithic code base um, and uh, gRPC boots inside of the Django kernel, so to speak. So I do a bunch of kind of like, like mild sort of acrobatics um, to make sure that the uh, Django ORM doesn't misbehave, but to have access to those things, um, I essentially boot it inside of a management command. There's actually a library called Django gRPC that I was using initially, but um, it, um, it's not working like performance-wise. It's, it's, it's lacking some things, so I, I kind of broke away from it. I, I've been trying to figure out a way to kind of contribute back to the, uh, back to the library to maybe get it working better, but um, essentially just between scalability and being able to run gRPC in general with Django next to it and using the ORM, um, there's, um, there are a lot, of, a lot of caveats. But yeah, so essentially gRPC is a library, um, but, um, um, and you, you run a server like in Python code. So you, there's like a, you, you can set up like an insecure server and then it's like server.run type thing, right? So that's, that's kind of how that library is implemented. Um, and, and gRPC itself is essentially just um, like a remote, remote procedure calls um, using protobuf as the like IDL or the interface. To, I think it's interface descriptor language. Right. So when it comes to protobuf, that's also something I've never really worked with before. This is basically a way for you to get data from your back end to the front end, right? Like there's no state being saved anywhere? Um, yeah, protobuf is super interesting. A anyone who hasn't um, looked into it or, or hasn't used it, I would highly recommend uh, checking it out. Uh, it's essentially like I think where the name comes from is the protocol is basically the schema or like the way of describing the, um, the objects that you're uh, defining. And then uh, the buffer, I'm pretty sure, is just in reference to the fact that these... Um, these these objects are actually just like memory buffers like they're just sections of memory they're extremely efficient um and they don't really require any sort of um any sort of like bells or whistles like the python objects are straight up just like sections of memory <laughs> it's it's actually insane when you get under the hood um and the classes themselves are actually just i mean i don't want to get too far into it because it gets really really confusing and it actually confuses me at times um but um but essentially like they're they're almost sort of like boilerplate uh, like structs over over like memory buffers, um, so they're extremely efficient when it comes to sending messages. So as far as message passing, like like we're talking about with Muse, um, like putting putting a protobuf through um, through Redis or putting a protobuf through RabbitMQ, it's lightning fast, and also it's it's extremely efficient. Um, it's uh, like so for instance, like ser serializing um, to uh, to like a JSON object or whatever else. All of those libraries are written with speed in mind, and so um, there's really like 
I, I don't think there's anything that, that we could have that could work so practical and be as fast. It's, it's really interesting to, have, um, to be using it. Right. So earlier you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, scalability on AWS. And now we're talking a little bit about speed, but we didn't really get a chance to go over like what type of scale this app is at. Like how many chat requests do you handle per minute or like per second, like whatever makes sense for, you know, your app. Yeah. Um, measurement wise, um, we have about like 300 daily active users. Um, so as far as um, um, scalability right now, what I've been doing is sort of keeping things on the lower end um, and using like the the number of active users um, in kind of like a smaller, like like in micro environments or micro uh, instances, um, just to see how they'll stress. Um, we actually ran into some problems not too long ago with... Um, we, we initially tried to write gRPC as like a threaded model. And um, in doing that, uh, we ended up... Um, because, you know, <laughs> because it's Python, um, it's not really like it doesn't lend itself well to sort of like heavily sort of threaded environments or, or to kind of like rolling your own like threaded environment. Um, we ended up with like a lot of deadlocks. We ended up with a lot of like problems related to that. So I kind of backed away and um, we're using a new library. So we were using the gRPC library, the, the native one or the, the main one. And uh, now we're using a library called gRPC lib that gives you uh, async access to a lot of those sort of um, uh, the gRPC functionality. And then also in turn, it lets you call a lot of the um, message passing or message broker libraries asynchronously, which is like really how they're supposed to be used, I think. Um, we had a huge problem, for instance, with uh, the rab one of the RabbitMQ libraries. Um, I forget which one in particular, but... Um, it just did not like being called in a in a synchronous threaded environment or th threaded environment like it was it was not cool that <laughs> so um so and then it, it, and then obviously like on on the other side as soon as we plugged it into an asynchronous environment it was obviously like the uh, i think we were using uh rmq aio rmq or something like that uh, it, it started working immediately which was which was super interesting to see so as far as scaling um um it's been a bit of a challenge um, and uh, we've realized that there are certain things like these kind of the, the the most contemporary, most useful, fastest sort of solutions are all being written in these asynchronous environments. So a lot of it has been sort of testing using these smaller environments. And then when we hit problems, which are actually not necessarily muscle related, a lot of them are sort of just um, like I was saying, deadlocks and things like that or or um, like blocking I.O., um, it's been it's been mostly just sort of um, um, like creating those those trip points to figure out where they're um, to figure out where they're happening and then using things like um, uh, like performance monitoring. We use Elastic um, like Elastic Co like APM and uh, like Metric Beat and, and Logstash and stuff like that to kind of measure those things. So earlier you mentioned that this is a monolithic code base on the back end. So I guess everything is sitting in one Git repo then, and uh, you just have multiple developers working on that, or are you the sole developer on it? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's multiple developers. Right now we have like four active contributors. Two people from the front end have kind of started um, um, trying to kind of spread their spread their um, um, their knowledge to the back end. Um, and, and then it's also been super helpful because there's a lot of like housekeeping stuff where it's like, oh, we want to turn this, um, this uh, you know, this table's indexed to this UUID from uh, this like numeric ID or something like that. And it's like, hey, it'd be really great if you guys could just sort of do that. So, um, so there's been a lot of actual, uh, what I've done is essentially set up, um, continuous in integration, uh, on the back end. So we have a dev a staging and a master that goes to production. Um, and, um, these guys are able to essentially clone the database, um, boot up the Docker instances, um, and just make a change, run the test, see if they work and, uh, and just kind of push it. So the, the development flow has been very, very, uh, very smooth. And uh, it's allowed sort of um, um, beginner developers to sort of pick up uh, pick up menial tasks and complete them and, and then contribute them with sort of with confidence, you know, which is great. Um, that's kind of like the main objective of using something like Django or, or you know, getting your testing up to 90 whatever percent 
Um, it's not necessarily just to be exact or to be precise. It's also to give um, developers confidence because, I mean, in my environments, I'm typically dealing with, um, you know, someone who has maybe one one year, two year, like like up to four years of experience with Python or Django or back in development or whatever. And um, if they don't if they don't know that their change is actually working or if they don't know how to test it, if it's something abstract, um, it can be extremely um, it can be an extreme time sink because like half, like, you know, more than half the time they spend will be in trying to figure out how to test the changes that they've made and then testing them in like, you know, in a deployment environment, which is not what we want. Right. I think the term there is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And, 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 and I, I like, I like that the code bases that I work on and, and sort of the, um, the DevOps stuff that I do, um, reduces the terror, you know, there's actually, there's, there's thunder in the background as I'm saying, <laughs> saying this, so it doesn't look too good. <laughs> Like, I want to help my developers. <laughs> <laughs> so just to be clear then, you know, there is only a backend component of this app written in Django. Like, there's no front end at all, right? You're not dealing with JavaScript or Webpack. That's all Swift or whatever iOS client you use. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's almost entirely Swift. Um, there are a couple like web page type things for like password resetting that we're kind of workshopping. But yeah, it's essentially just, it's essentially mobile app and that's it. Right. So I actually have no experience developing like native mobile apps. Uh, what led you down that route versus using something like React Native or like maybe some other solutions? The biggest, the biggest thing is that in designing a freeform app, um, um, it's 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 visually and and obviously like graphically uh, demanding. So some of it's written in Metal, which is like a uh, is a, I think it's a two D or three D uh, um, like graphics library uh, for iOS. And, um, and actually developing an Android um, component has been a huge sort of um, challenge for us as well. We've been, we've been sort of, um, um, we've, we've worked with a couple of prototypes and we've, uh, we've kind of tried to um, develop a sort of analogous thing. I was actually messing around with some stuff in React Native. Um, to, for me, React Native, like it was just a question of sort of booting up some of the like core functionality of, of the app and seeing how it performs in React Native. And it just wasn't like the performance wasn't there. It didn't feel good, et cetera. Um, and as far as a web app, um, I think it would be possible to do it. I was actually experimenting with some stuff um, recently. Um, we use uh, we use like transformations, uh, like uh, two dimensional transformations for a lot of these, uh, a lot of the things that we do visually. And um, I was uh, looking at um, some of the CSS transform uh, properties, and some of them look and perform um, pretty promisingly. I, I guess I'll say. <laughs> Um, but as far as depending on a web uh, interface or, or any sort of like web-like solution for this stuff, because it's such a visually demanding app, um, we couldn't really risk um, using like a sort of a, a multi-platform solution like that or, or, or a web-based solution. Right. So I guess the idea now is like test it out iOS. If it does very well, then maybe branch out, you know, if needed. Exactly. Exactly. Um, um, yeah, we're, we were um, we were actually um, contracting a uh, a a third party company or, or, you know, a separate company to do some of the, um, the Android development stuff. And it was just becoming such a sort of task to keep them up to date with a lot of the stuff that was changing on our end that, um, that we ended up stopping, which, uh, which was interesting. It was interesting to watch that from the back end perspective as, uh, dealing with, um, like the iOS app, <laughs> dealing with the iOS app and dealing with the, um, Android app as sort of clients of the back end, which is kind of how I like to do things. Um, it was interesting trying to um, trying to kind of keep them both up to speed on what was what was going on. Right. So speaking of the back end, before we move on to maybe talking a little bit more about your tech stack, uh, are there any libraries that you're using, you know, Python or Django specific that really helped you build this type of chat app besides gRPC? Um, 
Yeah, besides GRPC and Django, I mean, obviously Django REST framework, which is something that everyone's familiar with. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if um, that's that's um, terribly um, terribly interesting. But um, I mean, it really depends. I have, I have to actually take a look. <laughs> I'm going to open up my code base and tell you. There's um, there have been a couple good ones. Um, simple JWT for uh, um, for JSON Web Tokens um, is definitely a library that um, doesn't ha isn't very featureful. I would say. But it's something that um, you know, in the in the vein of Django and in the vein of a lot of the solutions that I have been using, um, it's been extremely useful in the fact that you can plug it in and it just works. And you're aware that this is not necessarily a forever solution, but it's good just to kind of be one of those things where you know, if I have somebody who comes to me with uh, a requirement, you know, like say the um, say like um, one of the uh, founders comes and he's like, hey, like we want to like you know have better security with body blah, blah, blah. you know, hey, we want feature X. Some of these smaller libraries for for Django that are just kind of plug and play um, can be extremely useful because I can just kind of be like, yep, we can, we can, we can do that. Here, here you go. You know what I mean? Um, so, so simple JWT was really good. Um, also because I was able to boilerplate a lot, of, a lot of the functionality into more complex stuff. Um, and it, it does give you access to, um, uh, sorry, to, um, to asymmetric uh, um, encryption or, or, uh, or key signing. So what that meant was basically that um, when I'm authenticating between the message broker and Django, Django can kind of be the source of truth for signing the uh, tokens and that I can verify those tokens uh, without needing to like send sensitive data or to trade sensitive keys. Um, so that's, that, that's been extremely, uh, extremely useful. Caching libraries um, and, um, and like message broker libraries um, I actually ended up using um, the RabbitMQ libraries, like I was saying, but I, I've I've been pretty disappointed with them. I've been I've been massively massively happy with uh, with a lot of the libraries for Redis. So um, there's a Red, there's the Redis library, the base library. Um, there's High Redis for um, for speeding up some of the uh, some of the communication with Redis, and then there's also A Redis, which is essentially a one for one async um, like a library like translation or, or whatever boilerplate or what have you. Um, that uh, that does all the things that the Redis library does. So what I've been doing is um, I've been switching us from RabbitMQ to Redis, um, not just for um, compatibility, but also scalability. And um, and I've been using Redis and A Redis. So if I'm in an asynchronous context, I'll use A Redis, and if I'm, if I'm in a synchronous context, I'll use Redis, like the Redis library. And um, and then writing the compatibility, like so, if I have uh, you know like send message, or if I have uh, you know listen for new messages, blah blah blah. Um, writing the uh, the um, the the uh, complementary components in sync and async environments has been extremely easy. So I can't recommend those two libraries enough, Redis and A Redis. Um, especially if you're dealing with a sort of situation where, like for us with Django, it's sort of moving from a um, an a synchronous request response based uh, architecture to a much more um, sort of free form, like do whatever you want sort of uh, system. Um, it can be extremely useful to have those two components and for them not to dive, um, diverge too much from one another. Right. So speaking of that, did you end up having difficulties kind of like figuring out how to ensure only one chat message gets sent ever? Like that uniqueness factor. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, we haven't had uh, we haven't had much of a problem in general. Um, I, what I've done, I think the 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 kind of saving grace of a lot of what I've done is I've made it extremely simple and sort of naive. And so if we do have like any sort of um, sort of uniqueness problems, there it's easy to kind of get under the hood and, and to fix them. Um, I think that's like kind of the one big thing that I really um, I really try to stress with developers on a new code base is like. If you can't, it's, I think it's part of the uh, the Zen of Python. It's just like you know, just just keep things simple, basically. Um, I know that's not in the Zen of Python, but but um, I um, 
in, in, de in designing it simply, if there's ever been like a uniqueness problem, if there's ever been any sort of um, um, problem related to complexity or related to um, connectivity, it's been pretty easy to get in, under the hood and fix them. Another library that I've been using recently um, that I love a lot is the phone number library, uh, like lib phone numbers. Um, there's a there's a phone number field library for uh, for Django, and then there are complementary libraries in other languages like Swift, for instance, um, that have completely solved like phone numbers as a problem. Like I think one of the biggest problems that uh, or one of the bigger challenges that a lot of uh, Django um, um, code bases run into are things like addresses and phone numbers, which are not standardized standardized internationally. Um, like you know, like in a simple like single form. Obviously, they're like they're somewhat standardized, but um, but um, it, the um, I, I literally haven't had to think about phone numbers as a problem in a situation where they may have been one of my biggest problems. You know what I mean? Which is which has been really great. Yeah, that's amazing. So this application then is it global then? Like anyone can use it from anywhere in the world? Yeah, yeah. Well, we have international support now. Um, we're actually moving uh, carriers for our um, phone number verification. So um, I have yet to test the uh, the new international uh, number support, but um, on release we will be supporting uh, international. So is that phone number then required at sign up or is that just for verification like optionally? So it's it's required for verification. We've been kind of going back and forth on that. Um, we want it to be more of a sort of like WhatsApp type um, solution. So it, um, like there are t kind of two schools of thought um, at the company right now. One of them is saying, you know, like, like let's require phone numbers. Let's like, you know, send um, alerts through text message if you don't have the app open, et cetera, et cetera. And the other one is sort of like, why do we need phone numbers? Like, why is this a thing? Um, I'm actually kind of like on the fence about it, but uh, in either case, like using the phone number library has just allowed us to sort of like offer that as a solution regardless. So like feasibility is no longer the question, you know? Yeah, no, that's definitely a tricky decision. It's like, I know when Twitter asks me for a phone number to verify, it's like, seriously, it's like, you don't really need my phone number, but in your case, it's like, maybe it is necessary. Um, I think because we're a messaging app and because it's supposed to, um, like, uh, I think if we were able to integrate um, similarly to something like WhatsApp, I think it would make more sense. But I think because we're freeform, it's not really like a, a text message replacement system. It's more a uh, different thing. So I would be, I would, I sort of lean towards the um, the um, idea of just needing to verify one thing for password recovery. So like, uh, you know, like like an email or a phone number or whatever. But I don't think that you need um, a phone number for this instance. But that's my opinion, and honestly, I'm not. I'm not like uh, in charge of like making those sorts of decisions. I, I just um, I'm, I'm, I try to stay in much more of a technical capacity and telling people what can and can't be done in, in what amount of time, you know. Mm -hmm. So going back now to your tech stack, you kind of hinted that you might be using Postgres. You're also using Redis, RabbitMQ. We have Django there. You are using Docker as well. Are we missing anything here that we haven't talked about? Uh, you said Redis. Um, I'm sure we're missing something, but it'll come to mind. <laughs> come to mind when I. <laughs> I'm sure it's something gigantic too. <laughs> so, are you using Docker then in both development and production? You mentioned you know, your devs kind of get you know up and running pretty quickly. And do you use Docker Compose then in development? Um, I use Docker Compose. I also use a multi-stage Docker file, um, which has been interesting. So, what I do is I build a. Um, I essentially like clone Python 3.8 um, image from from Docker Hub, and then I um, I install like base system packages, so things I'll need for like you know just rescuing something like Vim and um, whatever else like HTOP or IOTOP and, and all these kind of monitoring interfaces, and then like pip you know um, updating pip and installing. We're actually using Poetry now. I just moved from um, um, from pipenv, 
and um, and then there's a, there's a second stage that installs all the base um, all the base uh, requirements, and then there is a two like two uh, sort of uh, stages. One of them is named um, I think local local dev, and then the other one is named like deployment. Um, and what the what the local dev one does is install the poetry uh, dev uh, packages and the and the normal packages, and then the other one will just update the existing packages from the base uh, from the base image. So we end up with these very um, very uh, what do you call it? Like sort of um, generic um, base images that can be used um, over almost everything. And um, it's been really fast for building images and for testing and cloning and all that kind of stuff. So it's been pretty great. So like if a developer um, um, wants to start get started, they can use the Docker Compose file. The Docker Compose file actually also has a base like image um, um, sort of directive. So uh, so you can actually build the base. You can do Docker Compose build base and it'll build that base image. Um, and so all that stuff is like really kind of like smoothed out. I have actually been spending a lot of time recently just getting that all working properly. Um, and I think the Docker, the Docker stage, um, uh, like multi-stage, um, um, Docker file thing is pretty new. I think you need like one of the newer versions of uh, Docker, but if you, if you can, um, find it and use it, I would, I would definitely recommend it. The only caveat of it is that, um, if you are using an older version of, uh, Docker and you try to build using the multi-stage Docker, um, directives, it will it kind of rolls over them in a lot of instances. It can be a bit dangerous. I actually realized on CircleCI because I was using an older version of Docker, I was actually building everything all the time um, and uh, it was causing issues for me. So, so it's just something to keep, keep aware of. So earlier you mentioned that you are using Elastic Beanstalk. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you have everything set up on AWS? Mm-hmm. So we have a multi, we have a multi um, um, container environment for um, Elastic Beanstalk. Um, it's running gRPC. Um, Django and um, a gRPC worker that uh, resizes images and um, and like like logs messages. Um, so there's like one per each of those. The reason that I was kind of groaning about Elastic Beanstalk earlier was just um, for the sake of the fact that um, like uh, there's a lot of sort of there are a lot of instructionals online on how to use Elastic Beanstalk with Django, and it does seem to like sort of make sense. But um, if I could do everything over, I would use ECS or something like that. There's no real reason to have like a multi-container Docker instance that runs one of of these three things that are all very different. Um, they're going to have different scalability requirements. They're going to create different problems. They can even create problems for each other. Uh, since they're running on the same host, like I had, a, I had like a, an IO blocking issue on gRPC that was preventing Django from making database connections because they exist on the same uh, EC2 instance. So that was a that was a huge problem, and that was the kind of point where I was like, yeah, sure, it's convenient to set set it up this way, but um, um, it's definitely not the way that you should be setting it up anymore. You know, I think Elastic Beanstalk, for better or worse, is sort of a um, is a uh, uh, I think it's its use is diminishing uh, in general. I think people are just sort of using other solutions that are a little bit more um, um, bare bones as far as your access to like which instances get scaled to what to what degree, etc., and, and plugging them into different services. Right. So, do you also use things like RDS for Postgres and Elastic Cache for Redis, or no? Yeah. So, um, so I use RDS and I use Elastic Cache. Um, Elastic Cache was a bit confusing uh, because they do something strange where they uh, they create read write instances, but they're not Redis clusters. They're not true Redis clusters. So um, I actually ended up with a deployment problem recently where um, someone had listed uh, the read write um, instance of production or the read write instance of production staging and dev together um, for Elastic Cache. And so, like, we had, uh, you know, instance 0001 of uh, the, like, 
the dev inst- uh, or, or, or of the dev cache um, was the read write replica for for dev, and then zero 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 one was the, that for staging. But then on production, it was actually zero 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 two. So because we had explicitly named uh, the cluster instance that uh, was the read write um, instance, um, we actually ended up having a we, production came uh, went down when we deployed because it was pointed to the um, to zero 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 one, which was actually just a read only replica. Um, and it was giving us these very strange sort of cryptic errors. Like it was erroring on, um, I was using Sentry for logging and, <laughs> um, and it was uh, it was saying, it was giving me essentially some Sentry error. So I had to dig down on that. That was pretty, pretty confusing. Um, so, so, so yeah, I do use, I use RDS. I love RDS. Um, and I also love ElastiCache. It's sort of, uh, it's nice to be able to just kind of like, like, like break it out and use it. But there, there are some, some strange caveats I've found when using it uh, with Redis, uh, just in particular. Um, and then also, as far as RabbitMQ goes, um, that's all kind of manual because there is no, there is no um, sort of, uh, there's obviously like Amazon SQS or, uh, or SNS or whatever else. But, um, but if you want to use actual RabbitMQ, there's no sort of RabbitMQ wrapper solution for, for uh, like that you would have like with Redis and, and ElastiCache. So it's been interesting. It's another reason we're actually trying to drop RabbitMQ. Yeah, it's always nice when you can lean on the managed service, especially in AWS. Yeah, yeah. So are there any other services that you're using in AWS that we didn't talk about? Like, do you use them for DNS, like with Route 53? What about like a load balancer? Um, Route 53, and the load balancing is all done pretty much automatically through um, uh, Elastic Beanstalk. Um, um, we use uh, we use network load balancers um, because of the WebSocket stuff. Um, I, I, as of recent, uh, you're able to sort of view like web 2.0 or a, or a websockety um, type load balancing. It's not great. It's essentially round robin, but um, we're looking towards um, a system called Envoy, which I'm actually not familiar with. One of the um, the front end guys is actually taking that and um, trying to create a more uh, more reliable load balancing for um, for gRPC with a system called Envoy, which I think kind of sits on the same layer as uh, Nginx or something like that. Okay. Speaking of Nginx, is that a part of your stack too or no? Yeah, yeah, they have uh, gRPC libraries, um, and they also obviously they have like um, UWSGI library. Um, they have like a bunch of support. I actually am I'm a huge fan of Nginx. Um, I've noticed recently that they're kind of moving to this sort of premium, um, uh, like premium subscription model type thing. So it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out over the next five years. I think you're like you're given access essentially to certain like uh, sort of like. Uh, pay-to-play uh, features of Nginx now uh, with, uh, I think it's called Nginx Plus. Um, but um, as far as functionality for me, Django, U- UWSGI or USGI, um and, uh, and gRPC, all of the functionalities are accessible via, um, via free Nginx. Right. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Nginx as well. But yeah, I wish they would ever uh, release like an open source web UI, but that is a big feature of their uh, Plus add-on that you have to pay for. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, there. I know that there are management interfaces out there, right? But uh, but I haven't I, I haven't had much need for that. I mean, I, I I'm very much I spend a lot of my time in the terminal, so I think it's part of part of uh, backend development still um, in a very big way for me is just being able to kind of navigate a server and uh, jump into the configs and reboot a service, etc. That's all kind of uh, that falls under uh, under basic proficiencies for me. So yeah, right. So do you use any tools like Ansible for configuration management then, or no? Um, not really. That's kind of the last thing that we have to uh, to integrate. Um, essentially, I, I've been doing a lot of things. I, I, that's actually one of the things that I sort of um, I, I tend to lag behind on is like secrets management, and which I know sounds horrible, but um, but um, yeah, we need to. That's essentially like the last thing that we kind of have to put in there before we uh, release. 
So what about things like uh, using Terraform or maybe CloudFormation on AWS? Do you do any of that to treat your infrastructure as uh, code? Because that is definitely very nice to do on AWS, at least I found in the past. Yeah, I mean, the, the advantages that we've had from um, working with like Docker, obviously, like, you know, Docker is sort of uh, ubiquitous um, and, and being uh, ubiquitous in the industry or ubiquitous with backend engineering um, and sort of that experience of, of being able to treat your sort of your instances as code obviously lends itself to want to treat everything as code. And um, and uh, Terraform, I mean, I, I heard a lot of really great things and we're actually experimenting with it now. So um, so we do have a uh, Terraform configuration that's managed externally from the actual backend code base because it's been recommended, I think, on Terraform. And um, we're kind of just, we're noodling with it right now and uh, we're trying to get it to work. We broke out the uh, Docker, or sorry, the, uh, the Django and the gRPC instances into separate ECS um, like task groups. And, um, and we're just kind of like, we're, we're, we're in the um, process of on dev, like as we speak, um, just like kind of debugging any sort of configuration problems. But um, the thing I really like about it is that some of the things that are maybe less obvious when you're working in, in AWS, like in the sort of just general interface, like for instance, um, um, just like, um, like, like port ingress and things like that and, and security and making things a little bit more rigid, all that stuff is like very much sort of out there and available with Terraform. Whereas like in AWS, you might have to jump through a couple hoops to try to figure out how to like really make a nice like secure VPC. Um, there's like tutorials online where I can send somebody from the front end to just kind of like take a look at um, like how to like only allow, you know, ports X, Y, and Z between these two instances. And then otherwise they're like unreachable. Um, so like, so um, the, uh, uh, the front end guy who's been um, doing the Terraform uh, configuration has actually like made a very, very secure and very rigid and sort of very functional um, um, solution just by virtue of those things being much more accessible uh, via Terraform than via some other system, like I was saying, like the, like the AWS interface. Right. Yeah, it's also way nicer to have, you know, a couple lines of code versus like, oh, by the way, you know, click these 17 web UI components in the AWS oh, console. Yeah. <laughs> Don't even <laughs> get me started. Oh, man. I, I'm, I uh, AWS is... is it's quite a solution <laughs> to problems that you have. <laughs> it can be it can be so extremely frustrating for me personally. I'm 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 not a big fan of um, it as a tool in general. It's just sort of the tool that I've been handed in a lot of instances. I think it's sort of um, especially when people are developing minimum viable products for apps or whatever else. I think it's sort of the like the um, it's sort of like the name that they're familiar with, so they just kind of go for it without asking why. But um, I think in the future, I might kind of look towards just like Kubernetes or, or towards like some other or solution that's outside of AWS as much as possible. Um, I haven't heard anything about Google Cloud, but I kind of want to experiment with maybe um, using some solutions, some Google Cloud solutions, or maybe like I want to kind of test the, um, I, it's important to me when I'm developing uh, like any anything at all to make sure that it's sort of uh, platform agnostic. So um, I try to stray away from things like Route 53, for instance, even though we're, we're using it currently, um, because um, tearing things out of Route 53 can be um, more trouble than it's worth. And when you're locked into a system like that, I think it's just kind of, a, it's bad mojo. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Like you don't want a company to ever feel like you're locked into their system or they're, you know, they have no reason not to start jacking prices on you and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So speaking of prices, you're not going to have to go into like exact numbers, but can you give us an idea of like what type of machine specs you're running for like RDS and Elasticash and maybe some of your instances? 
it's a lot of mediums, um, stuff like that. The interesting thing is the recommended uh, um, instant size for uh, the Redis caches, I think, is a C5 large or something like that. So it's it's actually gigantic. <laughs> but um, I mean, it's 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 like in memory store, so it does make sense. It needs to have uh, like the more the more memory, the the merrier or whatever. Um, but, um, aside from that, it's mostly like mediums, smalls, um, some larges and stuff like that. But, um, if you're scaling or if you're building something for scalability, oftentimes, you know, it lends itself to smaller and smaller, higher numbers of instances. Um, so like, I think for instance, on production right now, like I was saying, just trying to keep the numbers low and, and stress, stress the machines that, that are there and that are serving. I think we have like, uh, I think we have like four, uh, smalls or four mediums running currently. Right. For those smalls and mediums, is that like roughly like two to four CPU cores with maybe like two to four gigs of memory? Yeah, like two V CPUs and like four, uh, four or eight gigs of memory, I think, each. Um, and a lot of that stuff isn't used. I mean, like I was saying before, um, I'm trying to keep the, the instance count low. But um, then again, you know, like there um, sometimes like the inflow can be a little bit unpredictable. Like, you know, it might be lunchtime and then like five or six different like group cha group chats just decide to pop off. And it's like, you know, I think as we scale, those numbers will become more predict predictable. But we do kind of need a bit of a... Um, it's not, it's not to the point where, you know, with, with auto scaling, for instance, it can take up to whatever, uh, depending on like your, your, um, your Docker instances, it can take, you know, five minutes to spin up an instance at, at certain times. So, um, having the, uh, having the muscle on standby is, is sometimes necessary, but there are different, like there are different solutions you can use, um, to, uh, to sort of deal with that. Right. So maybe now we can switch gears a bit and go over what your deployment process looks like. You kind of hinted at it before, you know, talking about different environments. But do you want to get into the gory details? Well, maybe not too gory, but some details of like, you know, let's say you're developing a new feature uh, on your dev box. How does that go from there to being live, uh, you know, capable to be interacted with on the front end? Yeah, we, we talked a bit before about sort of development flow and testing, right? So, you, you know, you, you develop your feature, you test it, tests locally, um, good, right? Um, you're in your own branch, um, push that branch up to the Git. And um, and then you open a pull request to dev, right? And when that pull request is open, CircleCI, um, um, breaks out a task and opens up your code base and sets up um, your, your Docker instances and uh, like locally, like in CircleCI and runs your tests to make sure that they pass uh, according to according to us as well, right? And when those pass, um, your, your PR is blocked until those tests pass, obviously. This is kind of standard development flow, but um, so until those tests pass, um, um, you're blocked from merging. And when those tests pass, they actually pass their code coverage reports up to CodeCov as well. And you uh, and there's a, a threshold for code coverage on uh, new code and then like a base level of code coverage for the entire code base that needs to be passed before the before that's merged. We have a bit of a problem right now where like everyone's an admin, so there's a lot of you know sort of like forgive me, but I'm merging this sort of situations. <laughs> but um, I think as things kind of expand, um, um, the code coverage and uh, the testing um, um, stuff will will be a little bit more strict. Um, nobody ever pushes stuff with broken tests, obviously, but uh, we we tend to sort of slip on code coverage at times because sometimes we just don't want want or need to cover something. But um, but so as soon as your um, your code coverage passes, as soon as your um, tests pass, um, you're able to merge into dev. And when uh, when you merge into dev, there's another Circle CI trigger that um, builds the dev uh, Docker instances and uh, redeploys um, dev. So your code will be in, like um, instant or <laughs> instantaneously, quote unquote, uh, integrated into the dev instance. And then we have um, we have separate builds on of the iOS app for. Uh, for master and then for like testing where you can point to staging or dev. Um, and then we just kind of have like a, you know, just flows upwards uh, from dev to staging to, uh, to master. 
Okay. So when it comes to pushing those Docker images up, do you store them on ECR? Yeah, we put them on ECR now, which has actually drastically um, decreased our build times. Um, we were using Docker Hub and we were paying for Docker Hub, which was a bit crazy. Um, but um, I, I, like I was saying before, I've been kind of against using ECR because it is a little bit idiosyncratic. It does kind of require you to do very ECR specific stuff, like like it's authentication and stuff. So like there's like a lot of there's some ECR related code in our Circle CI configs now that I'm like not happy about, but uh, the deployment times are just so much faster. Yeah, the, um, we use ECR now. Right. Yeah. Authentication. It's like by the way, you're gonna have to log in every twelve hours. That's insane. It's so weird, dude. <laughs> like I, you have to pipe out the. I have a script that's like it pipes out the output of the ECR login script or the ECR login command. <laughs> like it's really strange. <laughs> right into like. Yeah, it gives you that Docker login command that you need to like eval maybe if you want to run it programmatically. Yeah, yeah good times. <laughs> it's very weird. Um, and it's like, it, again, with a lot of AWS solutions, it's like, why is this done like this? <laughs> why are we doing this? <laughs> so right. it, I guess there's some like niceness to having things be, you know, rotated on a regular basis. But yeah, I mean, usually it just comes down to like the access to that is controlled by the IAM, not so much like the login specific to ECR. So it's like if they have your keys, they have your keys, whether or not that gets rotated. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's another instance of AWS needing to use another technology and not wanting to like get along with that technology, basically. You know what I mean? It's the same thing with like Redis, for instance, where it's like, Oh, it's a it's a uh, it's a read replica, but it's not a cluster. You know, it's it's it can be it can be like I was saying idiosyncratic or, or just kind of generally confusing um, when they try to make you play the AWS game. Right. So on the topic of deployment, you mentioned that what you do right now for dealing with secret management is maybe a little bit sketchy. Do you want to get into how you how you deal with that? Well, not really. <laughs> not really. Um, 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 basically, um, what we do is we have a set of env files, and I use uh, py um, python.env to manage those. That's essentially all, all that it does right now. Um, but um, So like we're able to sort of encrypt the ones that are sensitive or, or whatever that have uh, sensitive keys. But that's basically it. You know what I mean? Um, but um, if, you know, for the time being, it sort of works. Um, it's it's good enough. It's sort of like a good enough solution. And like I was saying, you know, if we had like twenty developers working on the back end, it would be a lot more of a concern to me. But because everyone um, at the company is sort of has a stake and sort of uh, is is um, is like trustworthy, it's it's a bit different. Like the, the crowd's very small. You know what I mean? So um, um, so the secrets management stuff sort of has been a second priority to you know getting the messenger working properly or whatever else. Right. Yeah, that's not too bad at all. I mean, I was expecting to be like, well, you know, we kind of just commit our secrets to version control and they're inside of our Docker image, you know, not, <laughs> you know, not that great. Usual <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking about, uh, you know, sketchy things, things happen where, you know, there's downtime due to unexpected events or malicious users or, you know, some type of disasters. What have you guys done to do things like back up your database or any user uploaded files? A lot of the um, a lot of the out of uh, out of the box RDS um, backups and uh, sort of um, um, backups for the systems that exist when you when you use um, Amazon services are are pretty pretty good um, as far as as far as like you know just taking backups like hourly daily etc. Um, but um, but um, there there have been like a couple instances where I've been a bit worried about um, certain things um, like especially like DDoSing and things like that. We really don't have a lot in the way of um, management for that. And um, I do use um, um, some of uh, DRF's rate limiting systems um, to just do some some simple like DDoS protection. 
Um, but um, but as far as um, as far as protection from like like data leaking and things like that, um, there isn't much much extra in place other than sort of just like basic uh, basic protections. I think when we hit those problems, we tend to solve them. Uh, obviously, when it comes to like data disclosure and things like that, um, it's not some, something you can kind of like it's not like a road you can or a bridge you can cross when you get to it or whatever. Um, but um, we have actually talked a bit about uh, maybe encrypting um, messages themselves and uh, just doing like some sort of some form of end-to-end -end encryption. Um, not only because um, it's um, it's kind of I think a good po policy not to be able to look into your users' data, but also just uh, because it's been a huge sort of issue or a huge hot button issue. Um, I, I think in general, um, I was actually on another podcast recently and we were talking about that. And we got stuck on that conversation for like a while of just like oh like you know. Um, um, are you guys going to have it, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I've actually been thinking about it a lot more now. And and because we use Protobuf um, um, as sort of separate from like the relations of the database and the sort of um, and the mechanics of uh, of how we um, deal with data, we can actually right now uh, I think encrypt the Protobuf field um, and not suffer any sort of like functionality loss, which would be really interesting to do. So as far as like security in general and sort of like disaster recovery. Um, like, you know, we take backups, we do all the kind of our, our due diligence. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, like, you don't want to be freaking out if your deployment doesn't go properly or a migration um, um, ends up working. But um, but then, it, like, going a little bit further into sort of privacy and stuff like that, I think it would be really interesting to kind of play with uh, encrypting the messages and not being able to sort of peer into our own data, especially since, like I'm saying, with Protobuf, we're sort of set up to do that. Right. Yeah, I think you can never go too wrong with, like, more encryption, right? End-to-end -end is, like, the ultimate goal. Yeah, yeah. Um, like everyone at, our, at the company too is extremely like um, um, sort of uh, vigilant when it comes to privacy and stuff like that. I think a lot of the reason that we're designing this app in the first place isn't just for the freeform aspect. It's also because like we see a lot of these companies um, um, now, you know, like WhatsApp or whoever else getting acquired by these larger companies and um, and like, you know, beyond just like just base kind of paranoia or whatever. Um, I think I think there's a genuine um, um, sort of demand for apps that sort of guarantee the ability of these larger like you know conglomerates basically to like actually like look directly at your data or sort of do whatever they want with your data and treat you essentially like the commodity like like a lot of people have been sort of saying you know mm -hmm. so yeah so so that's been an interesting um subject of conversation it, it and it I, it's uh it's something that i kind of groaned about when i first uh actually got to uh, muse because I think a lot of people start talking about that stuff in a way where they don't maybe necessarily understand the implications. You know, like if a CEO comes to you and he's like, hey, man, how about end-to-end -end encryption? You're kind of like, oh, my God, dude, do you even understand what that means? <laughs> like, right. But, um, but uh, I think I've kind of grown up a little bit as far as my own understanding of, uh, of, of what, what that really means. Like, you know, just kind of guaranteeing um, our inability to snoop on you, um, I think, is a really, a really interesting and really cool and also just like academically fascinating um, topic. Yeah, absolutely. Although it's funny nowadays, it's like we kind of see security and encryption as like a big feature, even though it should kind of just be the norm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's like uh, one one thing obviously is that uh, like for people like Facebook, it prevents them from like we we're like I was saying before, um, I'm treating you like a commodity. Um, so I think although on the surface level, a company like Facebook or a company like, you know, whoever else, you know, name one um, might say, hey, yeah, we're all for data, like, you know, freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it, it really it kind of conflicts like uh, on a um, on a sort of business level with um, with with how those companies operate. So it's it's interesting to see the way that they talk about it and the rhetoric that they use and and the companies they decide to acquire, etc. Yeah, for sure. By the way, uh, on the topic of disaster recovery, not so much uh, encryption here. 
do you have some type of like external service checking, you know, to make sure that the API itself is up, like some type of monitoring tool, like uptime robot or whatever? Yeah. So we um so we were fooling around with Marbot recently, which is like a um it is a like Slack based um, alerting um, bot. But um, it was it was a bit annoying. It was it was like very verbose, and it wasn't really um, it didn't really feel feel very good, basically. So um, I mean, we do have some basic alerting as far as uh, just sending emails when things are down. But um, but it's something that I'm still toying with. Um, like I, like Marbot was kind of the the first of many probably different solutions that I'm going to use for um, alerting us when critical systems are down. Um, I think the biggest challenge for me, especially, is like I want something that will be like alarm bells when it's something really bad and something that will sort of um, um, be like, oh, by the way, this is also happening, um, you know, to different like degrees of severity and, uh, and and to not have to sort of like, you know, tailor that. So, um, so I mean, like I, I haven't had to ha- um, set this thing up before. This has either been set up for us or just was never implemented. So it's, it's been an interesting, uh, it's been an interesting journey. <laughs> Yeah, no, that is an interesting point about kind of segmenting your automation for things when go wrong, like when things go wrong, because, yeah, it's like, you know, crying wolf, right? It's like you don't want to get 100 notifications, but two of them are really important and 98 of them are like, whatever, I can kind of like get by with not seeing those. Yeah, and, and not being able to distinguish between the two is the biggest problem for me. So for Marbot, it was like, you know, if it was like production's down, it would like kind of look and feel the same way that uh, it would be like when it was like dev deployed. So it was... um. It was interesting. I mean, I think any good solution is going to require more tailoring than I've had time to kind of uh, um, uh, to like commit to it. And I'm sure Marbot might be a good solution. But the one thing I'm I'm most concerned about too is that these sort of things, like like I'm sure there is a set it and forget it type solution. Um, I haven't seen like a very reliable one. You you'd named one before that I, I actually might go check that out after we're done here. But but um, the the biggest thing is like I don't want the alerting to fail, and so I need a I need a substantial or a sort of reliable product on the base level to be sending those alerts. You know, um, that's kind of been my biggest challenge. Yeah, the one I mentioned before was uh, Uptime Robot. They're not a sponsor or whatever. I've just been using them for years. But basically, it's like you know you create some health endpoint in your API, and they just hit it every five minutes looking for a status code two hundred. And if they don't get that, then you get emailed to say, hey, by the way, you know your site's down. I can't reach it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you need that external watchdog too. It needs to be separate from your other systems as much as possible and it can be a bit uh it can be a bit tricky to like set something up that is that is purely separate, you know. I've written solutions sometimes that exist like for instance in Django or something like that or that run on the same instance and then I'm like I'm running this on the same instance. I'm being really dumb about this. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's interesting. It's funny. And also it's kind of funny because it's like when you depend on a third party like Uptime Robot or whatever, you kind of wonder, like, if you don't get notified for a long time, you wonder if their notification system is even working. Usually it is, but sometimes it's scary when you don't get a notification for like a year. You're like, whoa, my, my site's been up for a year? Like what? Yeah. yeah. It's almost like unbelievable. <laughs> the interesting part is like I've often, uh, I've dealt with like a lot of B2B solutions where it needs to be up for specific times during the day. And those tend to be the times that I'm up, you know what I mean? Or maybe maybe not, but like they tend to be the, um, the like, like, the app sometimes, for instance, when I was working at Relio, like the app was up like nine to five weekdays, right? And that's like when I was expected to be in the office. So like we had alerting systems, but at the same time, if the app went down in the middle of the night, it actually didn't matter in a lot of ways because we were like serving mostly the United States. So so it's interesting, like with a chat app or with, you know, a sort of user, um, like an end user sort of application um, that isn't B2B, like you do, you need a lot more alerting and it's like an actual, like it's a huge part, like component is making sure that those things are always up. Yeah, for sure. So by the way, what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? I mean, I'm a big fan of the Zen of Python. 
um, if you type import this in Python for all, all those that do not know, um, it's uh, it'll uh, give you a sort of a little um, uh, like a little mantra. I think one of the biggest things that I take away from um, or that I've taken away from a lot of the jobs that I've had before is that um, it's easy to get excited about a certain solution that you're going to implement. But at the end of the day, I think it's really, really, really critical to just make sure that whatever you design um, can kind of uh, can kind of can be understood simply um, and isn't like sort of overcomplicated. Um, keeping things simple can often look really dumb. Um, for instance, when I went into uh, um, Muse and I redesigned all of the sort of uh, the object endpoints or like the RESTful endpoints, um, I showed somebody because uh, I was super proud of it, and they're like, "There isn't anything here," and I was like, "Exactly." <laughs> so it was. Um, it's interesting how like you know in my mind now as somebody with you know five, six, seven, eight years experience. Um, a lot of the solutions that I am the most proud of are actually the least exciting solutions almost. Um, so I would just say like that, like going back to sort of your main question is just, um, I've designed things simply, design things to change, um, don't future proof things, but always sort of make sure that, um, that, uh, your solution can be understood by somebody else and can be like sort of, um, um, is open to change. And is that like, you know, and, and by virtue of those things is, uh, maybe like an, like a thin abstraction layer over something else. Right. Yeah, no, that is excellent advice. And by the way, do you have your developers write documentation for the code that they write to or no? Um, so I actually, like I was saying before, um, I require myself to write certain documentation in certain places because um, our auto uh, our auto documentation for DRF includes the uh, like the doc strings for classes, etc. So um, I I'm sort of a, a pragmatist when it comes to documentation. I've seen a lot of documentation never get used, and I've seen a lot of uh, people really need it in certain places. So I just try to apply it where necessary. Right. Yeah. It's kind of fun when it comes to documentation. Sometimes you know the code is. Uh, easy enough to understand where you where you don't even need it, but then sometimes I remember like I wrote like a two line awk script where I had to write like eighty lines of documentation just to explain it. No, I I think it's I think it's that's the critical that's sort of the the uh, the, the the point right there. I think like that's perfect. Like there are just certain times where you're doing something that's confusing as heck and like you're not like there's no way around it and you have to kind of be like okay like you know hash okay sorry guys like this is how this works yada yada yada. Um, like the inline stuff is, is, um, I'm, I'm very sparse with inline, um, um, documentation, but I also, I feel like I write very, um, like idiomatic or sort of self-documenting code a lot of the time as a, um, as a reprieve. Right. So Dash, thanks a lot for coming on the running in production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to wrap this up by sharing any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Sure. Um, you can find me on GitHub at dash Dan W D A S H D A N W. Um, I maintain a uh, hypertext coffee pot control protocol middleware for for Django. <laughs> um, Not enough just... buzzwords. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's um, go check it out and uh, read about the hypertext coffee pot control protocol. Uh, it's a it's a novelty uh, um, um, RFC um, that was. It's kind of just a throwback. It's like an homage to, to better times. But um, but um, yeah, if you, you can find me on GitHub, um, you can find me online by that tag basically anywhere. Um, check out Muse, uh, muse.nyc if you want to sign up for the beta. It's, uh, it's uh, in test flight for iOS right now. So if you have a, a, an iPhone, by all means, um, sign up. And uh, yeah, that's basically it. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.